Rand Levy here. Welcome back to Malicious Life. The hacking of the DAO, a popular decentralized application from 2016, is a story somewhat different than those generally covered on Malicious Life. Instead of the types of attacks we've become accustomed to, the DAO hack occurred over Ethereum, a blockchain technology. Blockchain is quite unique. It operates differently from normal computer networks, and therefore the security protocols associated with it are quite different as well. Actually, scratch that. Blockchain isn't just different or unique. It's strange. Consider this. When the platform got hacked, everybody, not just the security experts, but everybody, knew how to thwart the hacker. So the question really was never about how to stop the hacker. It was whether to do so in the first place. I mean, think about that for a second. It's like a bank getting robbed, and instead of trying to get the money back, the customers of the bank all get together and debate. Should we try to get our money back or just forget about it? Today on Malicious Life, tens of thousands of people get robbed. Then a community gets together to ask, should we take our money back or let the hacker walk with it? To begin to understand why thousands of people might prefer to see a hacker pocket millions of dollars than return that money to its rightful owners, you first have to know a bit about how blockchain works. Ethereum is arguably the world's most successful blockchain platform to date. It's what you'd call a second-generation iteration of blockchain tech, the first being Bitcoin. Bitcoin was invented back in 2009, and Ethereum was first conceived of by Vitalik Buterin, a mere teenager at the time he came up with the concept. What distinguishes Ethereum from Bitcoin is the separation of application and infrastructure layers of the network. It sounds complicated, but it's not. Think about it like this. You can construct a building to house a store or construct an outlet mall that many different stores can come and use. Bitcoin is a store built for itself, a cryptocurrency which runs over its own blockchain. Ethereum is a mall, a blockchain over which many different applications, cryptocurrencies, consumer apps, and more can run. Bitcoin may be more broadly famous than Ethereum, but within blockchain communities, Ethereum is where it's at. Developers have built countless cryptocurrencies that run over the Ethereum network, as well as other applications and even games. CryptoKitties, arguably the most famous Ethereum application, is a game where users can take care of and trade digital kittens. CryptoKitties was a huge success, so popular that the entire Ethereum network slowed down in the days after its release. Today, developers are trying to come up with new ways to create fun applications on Ethereum. And you'd figure that if trading digital cats is the standard here, they'll come up with something better before long. The DAO, like CryptoKitties or any other cryptocurrency, is an Ethereum application. And like CryptoKitties, it was hugely popular immediately. It began its initial investment period, called an Initial Coin Offering, or ICO, 
at the beginning of May 2016, and just three weeks in, had already raised over $150 million from over 11,000 investors. This wasn't just astronomically more than the DAO's creators had anticipated, it set the record for the largest crowdfunding project of any kind in history. You can think of the DAO as an investment fund operated by everyone and no one in particular. Individual owners of Ether, the default cryptocurrency of the Ethereum network, invest their personal Ether into the fund. Investors earn voting rights in proportion to their amount of investment. So, for example, contributing two Ether will earn you twice the voting rights of contributing just one. The collective investors of the DAO then get to vote on new projects to fund elsewhere on the Ethereum network. Everything from here on is the same as with any other investment firm in the outside world. Approved projects are given seed money, and the return on that stake is then handed down to individual DAO participants in accordance with their original contribution amount. Again, two Ethers earn you twice the payoff, or twice the loss, of one. Perhaps you can see the appeal of such an application. It's the community investing in itself through a democratic process. All the DAO participants are in it as a team, with nobody dictating from the top down. It works without a central authority, because applications in blockchain run as what we call smart contracts. Smart contracts are just digital contracts that dictate the operation of any blockchain application. It follows, then, that every blockchain application is its own decentralized autonomous organization, or DAO for short. What we're calling the DAO is simply one example of this type of program, an investment fund that, instead of being owned and operated by humans, automatically runs according to mathematical functions dictated in computer code. It's a really exciting, utopian idea that represents a whole new world for decentralized applications. What possibly could go wrong? While the DAO was breaking records for funding, some in the Ethereum community were expressing concerns over flows in its smart contract code that, in theory, could expose it to security risks. Over 50 project proposals were lined up for investors to vote on when one of the DAO's founders, Stephen Tual, addressed in a blog post a recursive call bug that had been discovered in the code by community members. Here is how that post ended, and I quote, We issued a fix immediately as part of the DAO Framework 1.1 milestone. The important takeaway from this is, as there is no Ether whatsoever in the DAO's rewards account, this is not an issue that is putting any DAO funds at risk today. End quote. It's worth noting, of course, that Tual would have been one of the individuals with a vested interest in calming down the community by ensuring that everything was all right. Just two weeks earlier, a group of researchers published a paper titled A Call for a Temporary Moratorium on the Dow, which caused enough of a steer to make the New York Times. This same recursive call bug that was now making news rounds had been seen previously in another program called MakerDAO. 
those associated with MakerDAO were able to promptly address the bug because that program was still in its testing phase when the bug was discovered. Our DAO, on the other hand, already had over $150 million worth of Ether on the line. There was no time for delay. While the community was building hype around the DAO and some experts calling for caution, one DAO investor was brooding in the background, preparing. The code launched onto the DAO was quite complex under the hood, but it can be understood in quite simple terms. In fact, it can be represented in no more than a few dozen lines of code. What this malicious actor did was write a program to split the DAO, creating a child DAO with its same properties. The program would retrieve the amount of Ether located in the fund, which happened to expose another blatant programming flaw of the DAO. Possibly because its creators didn't expect so much funding at first, they created only one address through which the entire project's fund could be found. In other words, this was a bank with all its money in a single vault, making it easier and quicker to target. The malicious program then called to retrieve some amount of ether from the vault. Finally, the hacker built at the end of his code a recursive function, allowing the program to loop an indefinite number of times, taking more and more money at its master's whim. The DAO is being attacked. This is not a drill. Those, the words of community organizers from Slack.it, the organization responsible for building and deploying the DAO. It's Saturday, June 18th, not even one month into the fund's operation when this malicious code is deployed onto the DAO smart contract. Within almost no time at all, a third of the entire fund $50 million worth of Ether is siphoned into the hands of a single investor. The valuation of the coin plummets. Major news outlets break the story in the morning of the following day, before many investors are even awake to see it. Tens of thousands of investors open their computers and find their money gone. But as the community descends into chaos, there was one key component to the attack that would come to be very significant. A catch. Remember what I said about the malware. It was essentially a duplicate. The malicious program was itself a smart contract that, aside from the funny business that allowed it to siphon money, was essentially equivalent to its parent program in every other sense. Now, why is this important? This is a juicy one. It's the ICO period. The first month of the DAO's operation, if you remember, was its initial coin offering phase. Like any other decentralized application, funds could be added to the pot, but not retrieved or acted upon in any way until the ICO period ends after 30 days. Because blockchain smart contracts are, by necessity, immutable, the hacker and everybody else was stuck in a very awkward situation. Everybody could see the 50 million that had been stolen, but nobody, including the hacker themselves, could access it 
for 30 days. 30 days, then, was how much time the Ethereum community would have to decide what to do about their problem. Luckily, there was a fix, and it had to do with the very fundamental way blockchain works. In as simple terms as possible, blockchain networks are made up of individual nodes which process data into discrete chunks or blocks that connect in a sequence to make a chain. New blocks get added to the chain when a majority of nodes agree on the validity of the data contained within. Past all the complicated code, the rules, the terminology, blockchain is really just a ledger of agreed-upon information by participants of a network. Consider the implications of this, then. If a blockchain is simply a ledger and its contents are dictated by a majority vote, then how do you reverse a hack? A majority vote. It didn't take a security expert to figure out that all you needed to do to reverse the DAO hack was get 51% of the network to agree to it. You could then commit a network fork, diverting the entire Ethereum blockchain, starting from the block just prior to the problem block, the one containing invalid transfer of funds to the hacker. It's like stopping a bank haste by traveling back in time to the minute just before the criminals entered the vault and fixing the faulty lock that allowed the robbery in the first place. Forks are designed to allow for changes to network protocols, but there's nothing stopping them from influencing the transaction history itself. Getting more than half the network to agree that a malicious hack is an invalid transaction would be the easy part, right? Malicious Life is sponsored by CyberReason, a cybersecurity company. If you're into cybersecurity, and since you're listening to our show, there's a good chance you are, I don't think I need to tell you about the problem of logs. We've all had that experience. Something's off in the network. Perhaps something malicious is going on. So you grab the logs and start browsing around for signs of foul play. But even a one megabyte log file is roughly 500 pages of text or a good-sized book. It's the classic needle in the haystack problem. What you need is a system that can not only detect threats in the network, but also screen false positives and show you the important stuff. In other words, what you need is a system that gives you a story. Jeffrey Wright, a cybersecurity manager at RTI Surgical, knows exactly what I'm talking about. I'm Jeff Wright. I'm an RTI Surgical. We are a medical device company. We actually manufacture medical devices. I am the primary person responsible for security at RTI. I've been in the game since the 90s, since dial-up modems. It's great to be technical and it's great to be, great to be log-driven, but when you start trying to talk to someone that doesn't understand security at all, all they really want is a story. They, you know, it's all about visual aids. But we didn't have anything that really was piping on the whole concept of ransomware, ransomware, ransomware. And I felt that CyberReason did that for me. It added a layer of security that we just didn't have. It added that visibility to the endpoints when they're not in the office, which was a big deal for me. I was very impressed with not only the product, but the biggest thing for me was as someone who likes the red team, I was like, who better to protect the environment? Someone actually has a history on attacking. Now we have that visibility into the endpoints. So not only do we know that, oh, I have a problem, but now CyberReason allows us to see the how, the why, and the when. 
Cyber Reason's Deep Hunting Engine gives you deep visibility into endpoints. It automatically extracts statistical and behavioral analytics at a rate of 8 million queries per second on the data collected. Cyber Reason's technology can surface malicious operations without you writing a single rule. No more alert fatigue, no more huge log files. Learn more at cyberreason.com. The aftermath of the Dow hack was, in a word, messy. Everyone who lost money was understandably not happy. But it wasn't just they who lost out. 15% of all Ether in existence at the time was tied up in the Dow, meaning the stability of the coin itself was now threatened. The value of Ether itself dropped over 25% in a day's time, meaning just about every one of the hundreds of thousands of individuals on the Ethereum network lost money as a result of that one hacker. You'd think, at this point, everyone would band together to figure out how to reverse the effects of the event. Many people did that. There were, however, many, many others who took the exact opposite view on the matter. It's essential to understand a key distinction here that what we've been discussing isn't an instance of a blockchain network being hacked, but a blockchain application. It may have affected the entire Ethereum network, but the attack itself took place at just one point of contact. Just as you can hack a website, but can't hack the internet, you can hack a decentralized application, but can't realistically hack Ethereum on the whole. Blockchains, at least the good ones, are designed with natural incentive structures that either dissuade malicious actors or outright prevent them from breaking the network. The methodology behind these incentive structures are beyond the scope of this episode, but suffice to say, blockchain networks, when designed correctly, are inherently secure. Applications that run over the blockchain, on the other hand, are not so much different than applications that run over the internet. They may not be owned and operated by a centralized entity, but they're certainly programmed by one. Blockchain engineers from Slack.it wrote the DAO program, and as humans are wont to do, made some key errors in doing so that left vulnerabilities in the program. This, essentially, was the conflict for some Ethereum community members. The DAO was an app. It was to Ethereum what Yahoo.com is to the Internet. If Yahoo got hacked, would you fix the Internet? Why should their screw-up become everyone else's problem? If we bail out Yahoo, what about next time when Ask Jeeves get hacked? You can't bail out Yahoo and nick Ask Jeeves. So maybe there is some sense to the argument that you shouldn't reverse the entire future history of a blockchain network simply to accommodate a single smart contract, no matter how popular that smart contract is. Investing in cryptocurrencies is different than investing in the stock market. When you put money into a company, you're betting on the product, on the operation, and the people of that organization. Crypto isn't about any of that. When you invest in Ether, you're essentially investing in the promise of an entirely new future, a whole new technology, a whole new way of doing things. 
So if we're all collectively putting our money not just on any given coin, but on the concept of blockchain itself, then we have to stick to the principles that made crypto successful to this point. And one of the most vital principles of blockchain is do not touch. It's one of the most pivotal concepts behind decentralized networks, that you can build an entire system purely based in code. Not only are humans not needed, they're not wanted here. Because the infrastructure runs entirely according to mathematical processes, you don't need governments to issue currencies, banks to hold that money, or lawyers to write and maintain contracts. That's all people's stuff. A hard fork for some would be a betrayal of the blockchain concept. Even for the sake of justice, the ends won't justify the means, because it would prove everything blockchain is designed to avoid. That no matter how good our tech is, we can't shake the fact that people will always be the ones pulling the strings. People who tend to ruin things. So while many DAO investors were pushing to get their money back, others in the Ethereum community took the too-bad-too-sad approach. These individuals had chosen to participate in the DAO, and they should have understood the risks involved. But it wasn't always outside voices making this point. You may not believe it, but there were actually some DAO investors who believed so strongly in the principles of blockchain that they publicly argued against getting their money back. Many others were less romantic about it. For $50 million? Screw principles, they said. Maybe I don't want to be a part of a technology that can't accommodate this kind of crisis. In the end, it would come down to a vote. Everyone on the network, DAO investors and not, would get a say. The event would be managed by the Ethereum Foundation, an organization for the promotion and support of the Ethereum network founded by Vitalik Buterin. So here we have two opposing teams. Those who wanted the money returned to its rightful owners and those who were willing to bite the bullet for the sake of principle, each with valid claims. The very concept of blockchain here put to the test. Who would you side with? In the end, the vote wasn't very close. It went 89% to 11% in favor of forking the network. Before 30 days had passed, the network committed a hard fork. The DAO died. The hacker, whose identity remains unknown to this day due to the anonymous nature of blockchain accounts, lost all the coins they'd stolen as it was returned to its rightful owners, albeit at a lower valuation than before. Today, two separate versions of the coin now exist. Ethereum, or ETH, and Ethereum Classic, ETC. Those who dogmatically stuck with the anti-fork philosophy continued to trade with ETC, where the rest of the network moved onto ETH. As of this writing, Ethereum trades at around $115, Ethereum Classic, $4.50. The end of the story. It's nice, right? Investors get their money back, not many people live angry, the hacker fails, and everybody lives happily ever after. 
Except the DAO hack wouldn't be the last major incident to rock the Ethereum community. Parity is another application running over the Ethereum network. It's a digital wallet service that adds layers of security to your network account. On July 19, 2017, a hacker was able to steal $32 million from Ethereum cryptocurrency investors by exploiting a vulnerability in the Parity smart contract. And that wasn't even the worst part. Four months later, on November 6, 2017, an individual who came to be identified as DevOps199 took control of the entire library of Parity multi-signature wallets. In other words, DevOps199 successfully took hold of every wallet from every Parity account holder. In total, $150 million. The second parody hack was, in its own ways, even stranger than the DAO hack. The first parody hack was a deliberate attack with the purpose of stealing money. The second parody hack didn't seem to be that at all. In fact, to this day, we're still not totally sure what in the world DevOps199 was trying to do. According to a postmortem published by the parody team itself, quote, the user decided to exploit this vulnerability and made himself the owner of the library contract. Subsequently, the user destructed this component." End quote. According to their view, the act of taking hold of and deleting access to the parity library was deliberate. But how does it make sense that someone would gain access to $150 million worth of cryptocurrencies and then choose to delete the money. What's the gain? It's also worth noting the first person to alert Parity Technologies to the issue was DevOps199 themselves. They reported their own crime. It appears, at least to some, that DevOps199 accidentally committed one of the most financially impressive hacks in world history. and it only gets stranger from here. According to some reports, it may be that DevOps was actually attempting to fix the vulnerability in Parity's code that allowed for the July hack to occur in the first place. The act of taking ownership over the library may have been unintentional, and presumably realizing what they'd just done, DevOps panicked and killed the code. But doing so, was an even more deadly mistake, as instead of undoing all that damage, they had accidentally locked all the funds away, from Parity, from its rightful owners. Now DevOps199 themselves couldn't even touch it. Put in simpler terms, this person accidentally robbed a bank for $150 million, freaked out, and in trying to undo their haste, burned all the cash. Months passed without anyone able to reverse the damage. In the time since they'd lost access to their money, the price of Ether ballooned. Now, that same amount of Ether, instead of being worth 150 million, was worth 320. Everyone's stolen money doubled. 
After much deliberation and proposals from party and community members, the issue finally came to a vote. According to the precedent set by the Dow incident, the Ethereum community was set to vote on the fate of Parity's $320 million. Unlike with the Dow, though, this vote went against. There was to be no fork and no funds restored to their owners. It seemed, in the end, that everyone had learned their lesson. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. This week, we're starting what I hope will be a permanent addition to our podcast. Every episode will have a short interview with CyberReason's top researchers who will share with us their latest findings and stories from the world of cybersecurity. This time, I'll be talking with Asaf Dahan about a malicious campaign against financial institutions in Spain and South America and about malicious campaign in Brazil in general. I hope you'll enjoy this segment. And as always, I'll be happy to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can find me on ran, R-A-N, at ranlevy.com. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I.com. And on Twitter at at ranlevy and at maliciouslife. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at CyberReason.com. Bye-bye. Welcome to a new segment of our show, Malicious Life, which is a segment in which I interview researchers from CyberReason, from different uh, fields and different parts of the company, uh, on their work uh, in the world of cybersecurity. So lately in Malicious Life, we've been focusing a lot on uh, activity in Russia, in China, of course, in the US, but we've kind of neglected other parts of the world in terms of cybersecurity and malware. And we, in particular, never discussed, I think, Brazil, which it turns out is a kind of a superpower we're talking about a nefarious activity in the cyber domain. So with us today to discuss uh, Brazil's place in cybersecurity and malicious activity is Asaf Dan. Hi, Asaf. Hi, Ryan. Hi, and Asaf is a senior director uh, in CyberReason, head of threat hunting in the company and also a member of the Nocturno research team, which is a great name. So Asaf, uh, thank you very much for joining us in this segment of the show. Describe for us, please, uh, in general terms, the malicious campaign that you unearthed uh, in your research in Brazil. Yep. So, um, like you said before, so Brazil has been, uh, for over a decade now, uh, probably 15 years or even more, uh, one of the biggest drive, driving forces uh, behind uh, cybercrime. Now, what started as a very, um, in, in recent past years, when they started, it started like at a very local uh, operation, and slowly uh, um, and gradually, uh, they moved to um, to other territories. They expanded their operation um, overseas, uh, firstly to uh, neighboring uh, countries in Latin America, but we've seen also um, the operation expanded 
to uh, Europe and uh, and other regions as well. So we're talking um, about Spanish-speaking countries, if I understand correctly. Yes, basically this campaign is um, is about a very invasive uh, delivery infrastructure of malware, of financial malware that target that target customers of financial institutions, mainly banks. Uh, across Latin America and um, and other spanish speaking countries like like uh, Spain, for instance, with financial malware or banking children, sometimes there's the confusion. People think that it targets the bank. Um, it's, it's a common mistake to make. Uh, but actually um, when professional people speak about banking children, they speak about malware that targets the bank's users. So what the malware, uh, wishes or the malware author uh, wishes to achieve is to uh, steal either the credentials or uh, or uh, falsify transactions on behalf of, of the user of the victim. For how long has so been this campaign crack. running? So I mean, like they they come and go uh, all the time, and every time they've been monitoring um, campaigns from the past, let's say year and a half, and we see different cycles. And with each cycle, or with each, we call it the campaign, actually, uh, we see improvement. We see um, that they're very agile and they're very adaptive. And they basically try to, to come up with the best way of evading security products, um, whether it's with the delivery method, whether it's um, means to obfuscate or kind of scramble the code. Um, and so on and so forth. Across, I mean, all across our research, uh, we we showed um, the detection rate of, of those payloads that they emit um, throughout the campaign. Actually, we see like three main stages. Like you get something in the email. Usually, like ninety percent of the time, the user would get something in the email. Um, probably a, a link or uh, or some sort of, sort of attachment. Um, once it clicks on that attachment, opens the attachment or clicks on the link, it will redirect him to another site. Usually, could be Dropbox or Google Drive or AWS or GitHub. Something legitimate where the payload, the first payload, uh, which is a PowerShell downloader, uh, most of the time, not necessarily, but most of the time, some sort of a a downloader that will download the second page. Again, uh, it will be hosted usually on legitimate sites. The second stage will do some uh, environment checks, making sure that the code is clear, that um, um, uh, some maybe the the um, users are may have maybe Spanish or Portuguese keyboard, or that they're not running on a VM or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And once um, the Second stage um, downloader makes sure the coast is clear. Then it will fetch the actual the, the main payload. The main payload. The, um, so this, w- yeah, which is the, the banking trojan. Yeah, this chaining of legitimate services. What does it accomplish mm-hmm. for the attackers? Uh, so it's just one way of of uh, evading security products. Because I mean, if you think about it, if you have a firewall or a WAF or even an antivirus, the likelihood that those legitimate domains or IPs will be blocked is, is zero. Yeah, or, nobody or will block Dropbox or, or, or GitHub. Yeah, who, 
who, who would in, in right mind would block um, GitHub or, or Dropbox, right? So they, they capitalize on that fact that on that trust um, that you give, and that's a, that's a problem. That it's not something that they invented. The the Brazilian threat actors. We've been seeing it for years. For the last, I don't know, since the um, online storage came uh, a thing. Uh, attackers um, use it, but it's one way of, um, in which they um, evade detection. And they also um, use, if I well, remember correctly, what I read in your research, an, an open source uh, a remote control uh, component, right? Yeah, so um, during the research, we came across different types of uh, Brazilian malware that what they had in common well, it started from uh, strings that were very common, and I, I couldn't, like, understand at the beginning why those different malware share strings, uh, which are very indicative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, the functionality thing seemed also quite similar. And I did some digging, more and more digging, and um, I somehow uh, I got to a GitHub page that was put there three years ago. 2015, by a Brazilian uh, coder. The GitHub project is basically uh, a, a remote access tool, a rack. The tool's author uh, claims that he's no, he doesn't, he claims no responsibility uh, yeah. to any misuse of, of the tool. But, but then again, you know, uh, once you have a, a, a rack, right? Um, Somebody will use it, code, yeah. Source code over it. <laughs> So, so, so anyone, it's up for grabs. Of so course. Take uh, it and repurpose it and add whatever code on top of it. So in in my view and based on what I've seen, um, it, it's quite, um, it, it seems very likely. I cannot say 100% sure, but uh, it's very likely that many Brazilian malware authors or, or at least different kinds of a Brazilian malware author use this code or uh, adopted yeah. this code or inspired by this code. Um, okay, Asaf, I think, uh, I think we yeah. kind of uh, uh, gave a good illustration of the campaign. Uh, and if uh, our listeners want to learn more about the Brazilian way of writing malware and uh, more dive deeper into the campaign, where do they get uh, more information on your research? Well, first of all, you, you can uh, uh, dig into our research. And, uh, like it's quite long and, and thorough, and I, I feel like um, it can um, be a, a good uh, initial resource. Yeah, and we'll uh, put a link in the show notes for that research. Yes, and we have uh, another research that we published uh, on last September, also regarding Brazil, covering a different campaign. Other than that, I mean, there are, there are great researchers out there, like from different vendors. I, I also uh, relate to them in, in the blog. Um, um, you know, if people did a good job, like they deserve the credit. Um, so follow the links. Asaf Dahan, thank you very yeah, much. So, it's so, been very, very yeah. interesting. And I hope to uh, have you as a guest in our, in our future segments. And I urge our listeners to visit uh, uh, the research that Asaf and the Nocturnus team did. It's, it's fascinating research. Thank you, Asaf. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it.